We're looking particularly at verses 6 through 10 of Ephesians chapter, or pardon me, verses 10 through 20 of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and the subject is spiritual warfare. The ancient Spartans are legendary for their warrior culture. Being warriors was a predominant focus of their culture. They were so focused on warfare, in fact, that all seven-year-old boys left home to live in an army camp and to be trained as warriors. So when you turn seven in Sparta, time to go leave your mom, leave the comforts of your home, and go live in an army camp and be trained to be a warrior. Reflecting on this warrior culture in the New Testament teaching on spiritual warfare, the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon remarked that, like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. Indeed, like the Spartans, every Christian must learn to fight. This is the subject of Paul's instruction here in this section. But Paul isn't talking about literal, earthly, physical warfare. Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. So that's the subject before us today, the spiritual fight that all Christians are in. We'll look first at the goals of the fight, then the enemy we're fighting, and then the means provided for us as we fight. So let's begin with the goals of this fight. The first goal is to stand. In the beginning of this section of Paul's epistle, the emphasis is on defensive combat and spiritual warfare. All redeemed sinners are under attack. All those who are under the curse of the law until Christ rescued them are under attack. All those who deserve God's wrath until Christ bore it in their place are under attack. All of those who are blind and deaf to the gospel of Christ until God gave eyes to see and ears to hear are under attack. All those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are under attack. The enemy of our souls will not sit idly by as God rescues us, first from the penalty and then from the power of sin. And eventually, when Christ comes back, to put even death under His feet. All throughout this process, the enemy of our souls will not sit idly by. He's on the offensive against us. The enemy of our souls will not sit idly by as God takes hell-deserving sinners like us and pardons them by faith in Jesus Christ. The enemy of our souls will not sit idly by as God clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and welcomes us into His family and teaches us how to live according to the house rules as children in His home. The enemy of our souls will not sit idly by through this process. All Christians are therefore under attack. And the first goal that Paul mentions here when he begins speaking about spiritual warfare is simply to stand. See that in verse 13 and verse 14. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Verse 14, Stand, therefore. As Sinclair Ferguson says, we might think that to stand in this spiritual warfare is a relatively insignificant achievement. But the more that we read the New Testament and the longer we experience the pressure of spiritual warfare, the more clearly we will see that to remain standing after all the heat of the battle is a work of supernatural grace in us. In other words, it's not as easy to stand as we might think it is. Consider how many Christians, even church leaders, pastors, various sorts, various stripes, whatever their title might be in various denominations, bishops, overseers, pastors, apostles, whatever, even within the Reformed tradition, consider how many Christians and how many pastors you have heard of who have not stood, but have fallen. Some even to the point of abandoning the faith altogether. To stand, therefore, to stand, therefore, is not as easy as we might think. To fight the good fight and to stand at the end of it all is no small achievement. And to stand is strategic. We must at least stand. In a war fought on several fronts, it's crucial that each front at least, at least hold the line. Even as other fronts may advance the line. If one battalion is gaining ground, but another is losing terribly, then the result might be a net loss for the army as a whole. Likewise, the head of our army, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, through the Apostle here, commands us to stand. It's strategic that we stand. And He loves us. He wants us to stand. He cannot bear to see some of His soldiers conquering while others go down. We Christians are to be like the fictional Three Musketeers. If you've read the book or seen the movie, all for one and one for all. This ought to be our motto as Christians. We need to be like those elite soldiers who leave no man behind. And we also ought each individually to feel the responsibility To refuse to be the one insofar as it depends on us. For whom the others must continually be coming back for because we've fallen again. We must all endeavor to stand. There's an old hymn which says, See the mighty host advancing, Satan leading on, Mighty ones around us falling. Courage almost gone. Have you ever felt like that? You just feel like the onslaught of evil is almost too much to bear. And you see people that you thought were stalwarts in the Christian faith dropping around you. See the mighty host advancing that is toward us. 
Satan leading on. Mighty ones around us falling. Courage almost gone. But the chorus reads like this. Hold the fort. The Savior's coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. Brothers and sisters, stand. The battle is fierce. Stand. Soldiers may fall all around you. Stand. Jesus signals, hold the fort for I am coming. Wave that answer back to Him. By Thy grace, I will. Stand. The second goal of the fight is to advance. We're never to do less than stand, but we are to do more. In the middle of verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul pivots away from defensive talk and begins talking about offensive combat. He speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And of course, the sword can be both a defensive and an offensive tool. Here, also, it serves these dual purposes. We are to defend ourselves with the Word of God. You think of Jesus' response to the tempter in the desert. Satan appears to him with his wily temptations, and Jesus responds, It is written. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is a defensive weapon that might enable us to stand. But also, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is an offensive weapon with which we are to attack our spiritual foes with the Word of God. And more on this in a few moments. But notice simply that Paul stops talking about holding ground and begins talking about gaining ground, so to speak, from verse 17 where he introduces the sword of the Spirit and onwards in this passage. We are to take enemy ground. That's the thrust of what Paul is praying for in verse 19. Paul wants to proclaim the gospel boldly and with divine help in order to take enemy ground. Every one of those given by the Father to the Son in eternity past. Every one of those for whom Christ shed His blood must be rescued from behind enemy lines. Not everyone will respond to the gospel favorably. That's just the reality. Not everyone will respond to the gospel favorably. But we may be confident when we evangelize that as it was in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, so shall it be in our day that as the Word of God is preached, those who are appointed to eternal life will believe. Souls will be rescued from peril as Satan loses his grip upon them. Prisoners of war will be set free as Christ smashes in the gates of hell by the power of His Spirit in the proclamation of the Word of God. In other words, as we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the church will advance. Christ Jesus will build His church through those means. 
the Word of God will advance and people will be rescued. So the goals in spiritual warfare are to stand, yes, and to advance. The enemy in spiritual warfare, at least the one mentioned here, is demonic forces. Paul's instructions about spiritual warfare follow immediately on the heels of instructions about everyday things like family relationships and work. Sinclair Ferguson points out that this very location of the instructions about spiritual warfare just after those very ordinary things ought to teach us that it is in the ordinary progress of sanctification, the ordinary progress of sanctification, that the devil seeks to defeat us. Not just mountaintop experiences is the sphere in which Satan appears. Therefore, Ferguson continues, we should recognize that in marriage, in parent-child relations, and in the daily working world, in these relationships, we are not dealing merely with flesh and blood, but with rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as verses 11 and 12 teach us. C.S. Lewis has famously pointed out that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In view of these twin dangers, then, we need to navigate our way between a mere naturalism on one hand, which denies the reality of supernatural beings which seek to harm us, and an unbiblical demonology on the other hand, which runs way beyond what the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include for us in Scripture and to begin speculating about all sorts of details that we just aren't given in the Word of God. On this point, Brian Borgman and Rob Ventura note that things like formulas for exorcisms, binding the devil, rebuking demons, and mapping their physical location have little or no biblical foundation. In fact, in the central New Testament passage on spiritual warfare, namely Ephesians 6, 10-20, the Apostle Paul makes no mention, no mention of any of these things. End quote. However, just because some people are confused and misled and excessively preoccupied about such things, we have no excuse for ignoring what the Bible does teach about Satan and other demons. It is important to state clearly that here and elsewhere, the Bible assumes the reality of evil spiritual beings and states that they wish to harm us. And therefore, we are embroiled in battle with them, whether we like it or not. And to quote Borgman and Ventura again, how we think about this battle is crucial to how we fight it. We cannot emphasize enough the significance of Ephesians 6, 10-20. This classic passage gives us a biblical framework for spiritual warfare. On the one hand, it frees us from the misconception of a closed, naturalistic worldview that understates our spiritual battle. 
On the other hand, it provides us with a sane approach that avoids overstating it as well. This text gives us a perspective on spiritual warfare that can dramatically shape our daily lives, showing us how to engage rightly in this great war. So rather than avoid or ignore spiritual warfare, and rather than obsess about demons or otherwise improperly wage spiritual warfare, we should wage warfare against demonic forces rightly, using the means that God has instructed us to. What then are the means that God has provided? The means that we should use are the spiritual provisions that God has made for us in Christ enumerated in this passage. We'll talk about specific provisions in a moment, but let's talk first simply about the fact that provision is made for us in and only in Christ. We are to fight in dependence upon Christ and His strength. This is explicit in verse 10. When we read the Lord in verse 10, it is referring to Christ as the New Testament regularly does. We are to fight. But we are to fight in dependence upon external strength and external provision. We Christians are like the Spartans in that we are necessarily warriors. But we are unlike the Spartans in that we are not to rely on our own strength, but in the strength of another. The strength that God has provided for us in and through Christ Jesus. Be strong, not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord, he says in verse 10. And in the strength, not of your biceps, but in the strength of His might. This is what Ephesians 6.10 tells us. This is where it all starts. We must depend on Christ and the provisions that are ours in Him. One important application here for those who are not yet trusting in Christ for salvation, is that you have no help at all in the spiritual war. You are therefore presently under Satan's power. In fact, you may be so completely under the power of Satan that you don't even think that you are under his power. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about being blinded by the God of this world. Blinded, but you think you see. This is the state of those who are outside of Christ Jesus, who are not yet trusting in Him for salvation. There actually is no provision for you to win against Satan and his demons outside of Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ, but you think that you are not under Satan's power, then you're like someone under the influence of drugs who doesn't correctly perceive reality or maybe numb to reality or unconscious of reality altogether. And you don't realize the danger that you're in. And if you die without trusting in Christ Jesus, you'll spend eternity apart from Christ in hell with Satan and his demons where you'll be punished by God forever. The only way to not lose the war for your soul in which the enemy seeks to steal it, kill it, and destroy it 
is to seek outside help from Christ Jesus. Unbeliever, you're a sinner, like we all are, like I am. But you are presently under God's judgment for your sin, deserving of His wrath. But God offers pardon to His enemies. Anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be pardoned for their sin and reconciled to Him. Jesus lived a life, non-Christian, unbeliever, that you should have lived. And died a penalty-bearing, wrath-bearing death on the cross, which you deserve to die. Shift your confidence away from yourself, your own merit, your own supposed goodness. Shift your confidence away from anything else, anyone else that you might be trusting in. Put your confidence on Christ and Christ alone. You will be forgiven for your sin. Pardoned. Clothed in righteousness. Cleansed. And, coming back to the main point of our message today, equipped for the spiritual battle that you will find yourself engaged in. Spiritual provision for spiritual warfare is only found in Christ. But if you are in Christ, here are some of your spiritual provisions. The armor of God. Sinclair Ferguson cautions us that it would be unwise to be narrowly specific about what Paul intends us to understand by each piece of armor. In other words, the details of this section are like the details of the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We shouldn't press them too far. There's likely one fairly obvious point of comparison between the thing mentioned and the corresponding piece of armor. And then we should probably go easy on comparisons after that. So for example, if someone said, truth is foundational to the Christian life, we shouldn't respond, well, actually Paul says that truth is like a belt. And as we know, a belt is not a foundation. Right? So you see, we don't, we don't want to push these too far. There's likely one fairly obvious point of comparison. And after that, we need to go easy on it. Paul wants to get across mainly the importance of the things signified by the armor for our spiritual warfare. He uses the metaphor of armor secondarily as a rhetorical and as a pedagogical help. In other words, he's using metaphors to help us visualize and understand the importance of putting on these things better. And these are the things that we need to put on. First, he does name truth. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. Well, here's here's, I think the point of comparison. Roman soldiers would wear a long flowing robe when they were not fighting. And then when they would go to fight, they would gather up their robe and tuck it in their belt. And you can imagine that without their belt... They basically couldn't do anything in terms of fighting. They'd be fighting around with this long flowing robe, tripping over themselves, falling down, and so on and so forth. So you basically can't do anything without a belt. And so you basically can't do anything without truth. I think that's the main point of comparison here, right? The first step is just truth. 
Right? It, put it this way, even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So, you can't, you can't actually be strong in the strength of a dead guy and in the power of his might. So truth is foundational even to the fact that Christ has been raised and that you can actually depend on Him. Then again, if there are no devils trying to get us, then you can't really fight them. Right? And so on and so forth. You can see how truth is just so foundational to spiritual warfare, to the engagement in it. If you're not living in reality, actual, real reality, then you can't really do anything. Then he goes on to talk about righteousness. And he talks about righteousness as a breastplate. Right? So this would be like, the modern comparison would be like a bulletproof vest. Put on the bulletproof vest of righteousness. Well, can you still die if you're wearing a bulletproof vest? Well, yeah, sure you could. But why do we bother to wear it then? Because it covers up vitals. Right? Your heart, your other organs, etc., etc., And I think here's the point of comparison. You may have a belt, but it won't help if you get an arrow in the heart. Right? You may have have a belt on, but if you get shot in the chest without a bulletproof vest, you're still probably going to die. Right? So, truth on its own is essential. You can't even begin to start fighting when you've got a long flowing robe. But you need to also do more than that. You need to also cover up. Right? And so I think Paul's stressing the point that truth and righteousness go together. In other words, we've talked before about the importance of both orthodoxy, which is right belief. Ortho means straight, and doxy represents belief. Right? And, and again, ortho, straight, and praxy represents practice. So straight belief is orthodoxy, and straight practice is orthopraxy. And we've talked before in this church about the importance of doing both. We need to have orthodoxy, in other words, truth. But we also need to have orthopraxy, in other words, righteousness. So put on your belt and actually live with correct ideas in your head. Live in the real world, understanding truth properly, thinking clearly and cogently about things. But don't just think that you, now you've got all, everything sorted out in your head, you're good to go. you also got to apply it to your life, right? So... You need both truth and righteousness. He goes on then to talk about as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And I'm going to be honest with you, this confused me for a long time. Probably, if, I, if I'm going to be entirely honest with you, up until this past week when I was studying this. Because I always understood this as a reference to evangelism. Having, having your shoes for your feet, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. But I was saying, like, so the shoes for your feet are the readiness to evangelize? And I, was, I just had a hard time understanding this. But, but what I realized this, this week was two things. One is this emphasis on defensive combat, which is so prevalent in the first half of this section. I hadn't really noticed that before until I dug into it a little bit deeper this week. There's a really heavy emphasis on defensive combat. And this section about having shoes for your feet, uh, or this, this statement about having shoes for your feet, comes in the section 
focused on defensive combat, which would lead one to believe then that the shoes are defensive rather than offensive. And then, as I was reading commentaries this week, I learned that the Roman soldiers basically wore cleats as they fought. They had they had ancient version of football boots with little stubs on the bottom, which would grip in. And so as they were fighting, they wouldn't be slipping around in the mud and that kind of stuff, but they would be standing firm, right? So, so then it became clear to me what is happening in this section. Paul is saying that the gospel gives us stability. We put the gospel on our feet, so to speak, like the Roman soldier puts on his football boots, and he's not slipping around in the mud. So we put on the gospel and it gives us stability. So some of the ways that we can get knocked around in the Christian life, at least two ways are like this. Pride on one hand is very debilitating to spiritual warfare. Despair on the other hand is also very debilitating to spiritual warfare. That Sometimes we get very puffed up. We begin relying on our own strength instead of the strength of Christ. We begin becoming very self-righteous. And self-righteousness is insidious because by definition you don't realize that it's a sin. Right? You begin to think that you're more righteous than you actually are. By definition you're blind to self-righteousness. And so that's very detrimental to our spiritual warfare. Despair. Also, right? I'm not talking about just feeling conviction of sin, which is a healthy part of spiritual life, but despair. Where you just feel like giving up because you just feel like you're, you're lost and there's no hope and you can't do it. Well, why do you feel like you can't do it? Ironically, it's actually the same root as pride. Because you're trusting in and depending on your own strength. And so when you begin trusting in and depending on your own strength and feeling like it's all up to you, and feeling like you got to save yourself. Now you got to win this victory single-handedly. You're going to tend toward pride or despair. And what the gospel does, what the gospel does is it actually helps get us away from either of those ways of slipping. It keeps us out of the mud by teaching us that we are loved by God, that God has undertaken our salvation. That, that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. And that we don't need to wallow in our sin or do penance or something like this. We need to come quickly and confess our sins to a loving Heavenly Father who stands ready to forgive us, to restore us to right relationship with Him. And we have a God in Heaven who is ready to help us. And though we cannot do it on our own, The Gospel teaches us that. It teaches us that God will preserve us and finish the work that He has begun in us and so on and so forth. And so the Gospel actually helps keep us appropriately humble. And humility is not just thinking badly of yourself. Humility is thinking accurately of yourself. And so despair is actually not humble. Despair is actually thinking that you know better about who you are and the situation you're in than God says in His Word. And pride is likewise not thinking accurately above yourself, but thinking more highly of yourself than God says 
is true about you in His Word. The Gospel helps keep us appropriately humble where we recognize we're sinners. We can't fight this spiritual fight on our own. If the victory depends solely upon us, then all hope is lost. But praise God, it doesn't. And God's Spirit indwells us and He will help us. And where we sin, we will find forgiveness. And so on and so forth. The Gospel helps keep us firm. Gives us footing as we fight the spiritual fight. And so, I think this is what Paul's getting at when he talks about having as shoes for your feet, the Gospel. And Paul goes on to talk about the shield of faith. The enemy, Satan, is called the accuser of the brethren. Roman soldiers had shields which they covered with wet leather prior to battles with which they would extinguish fiery arrows. We sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Accusations from Satan are like fiery arrows. But they're like fiery arrows which lose both their point and their heat when they hit the shield of faith. Just as fiery arrows would lose both their point and their heat when they hit these wet leather shields of the Roman military. When we have the eyes of faith fixed upon our great high priest who is in heaven pleading for us, accusations from the enemy, fiery arrows from the enemy are not to be feared. Martin Luther talked about dealing with accusations from Satan and he said that he responds to Satan like this when Satan accuses him. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say that I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. In other words, for Luther, Satan's reminders of our sin were just reminders of Christ who has borne our sins in Himself and Christ who intercedes for us before the Father that we might receive all of the blessings of the covenant which He mediates. So no sharpness and no heat are left in accusations when we deal with them like that. Next, Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. This, on one hand, could just be a simple statement that we need salvation from Christ. As I alluded to earlier when I said that you can't, you can't even fight the spiritual fight without Christ. If you're not a believer, if you've never been saved, you can't fight the spiritual fight. This might just be a simple allusion to that, as the helmet is generally thought of as probably the most important defensive armor that we have. But it may also be, Paul might also be making a comparison along these lines, that we are to think like a saved person. In other words, think like a regenerate person. 1 Corinthians 2.14 talks about how the natural man does not 
understand the things of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. Right? And as I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Unregenerate people think differently than regenerate people, and vice versa. Regenerate people think differently than unregenerate people. This doesn't mean that regenerate people are smarter or have the capacity to be more logical, but it does mean that regenerate people are no longer suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 talks about. The effects of the Spirit in our lives is such that our minds are no longer hostile towards God, that we are no longer antagonistic towards the truth, no longer unwilling to hear it, to acknowledge it, to perceive it. And when we think about it like that, it makes a lot of sense for Paul to compare it to, to, to compare, um, or to talk about putting on the helmet of salvation. That thing which protects our minds, this, the control center as it were, Think like a saved person. Right? No longer suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but think biblically, rightly about all things. And then he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we talked about this already, both an offensive and a defensive weapon. It's defensive in that we repel attacks upon us by it, as Christ did with the tempter. It is written. But it's also offensive as we go and proclaim the gospel. That people hear and believe and are saved. And Satan is driven back and Christ's church advances. We're going to sing later in the service about fighting with the sword that makes the wounded whole. This is the kind of sword that the sword of the Spirit is, isn't it? The sword has no healing uh, effects upon Satan. But the sword of the Spirit certainly does have a healing effect upon those whom God has predestined to save. Among those that God has planned to save. The, as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And the sword functions like a surgeon's scalpel. Not making a cut which harms, but making a cut which promotes health. People are cut to the heart as those who heard Peter preach in Acts 2 were. Such that they come under conviction of sin and cry out audibly or or even internally, what must I do to be saved? What then should we do? And eventually they look to Christ and are saved from their sin. Made whole by this sword of the Spirit. It is an offensive weapon as well as defensive. And then in verse 18, Paul talks about prayer. Says that as we put on this armor of God, as we stand, verse 14, the beginning of verse 14 is actually connected with the beginning of uh, verse 18. Stand therefore... And he goes on and talks about all of this and then says, praying at all times in the Spirit. In other words, our whole battle, everything is to be carried out as we pray in the Spirit. With the Spirit's help, that is. With all prayer 
and supplication. Keeping alert with perseverance, this has to do with the defensive aspect of things. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given me to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This has to do with the offensive aspect of the combat. So we should be praying for ourselves as we fight. Asking the Lord daily to protect us, to preserve us, to strengthen us. We ought to be consciously uh, taking truth and righteousness and faith. All of these things that are mentioned to ourselves. The gospel, getting ourselves on the firm footing. Jerry Bridges famously said, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Doing that in the morning and getting ourselves on firm footing. Putting on those cleats with which we can wage war against the enemy of our souls. We ought to be praying for ourselves. And as Paul says here, and for all the saints, verse 18, making supplication for all the saints. We ought to be praying for others. Because again, our motto needs to be all for one and one for all. We can't, we can't be less than the elite soldiers who refuse to leave a man behind. God forbid that the Christian church would be more ruthless, more heartless than that. That we should be less noble and less courageous than to go back for one who's fallen in the battle. Try to restore him or restore her. We ought to be bringing our brothers and sisters, our fellow soldiers before the Lord. Not just pleading that we will be safe. Get me out of this battle. But get my brother out of this battle. Get my sister out of this battle. Especially those whom, with whom we're most closely related. Especially fellow members in your own local church. We have to be praying for one another. We have a responsibility towards one another. As we've highlighted already a few times working our way through Ephesians, we, we just ought not to conceive of the Christian life as a solitary endeavor. We ought not to think of salvation as something that happens to me, but something that happens to us. We ought not to think of sanctification as something that happens to me, but something that happens to us. Not only do I need to grow in Christ-likeness, but we need to grow in Christ-likeness. Not only do I have to be Christ-like, but the whole tenor of my home ought to be Christ-focused and God-glorifying. And I have a responsibility in that towards my family. Not only do I and my family need to have a culture of Christ-likeness, but also our church ought to have a culture of Christ-likeness. And we have a responsibility toward one another in that. And then again, especially, not only all church members, but those whom you know best, those whom you know are struggling, those whom you know are in the heat of the battle in one way or another. We have to be bringing them before the Lord. God forbid that we should fail to provide the military support, so to speak, for our brothers and sisters, that we would withdraw or retreat and to leave them to fight the battle by themselves. 
or that we would send them alone to go take a strategic point when we really ought to be going with them. We got to think in these kind of categories in our prayer for one another. Make supplication not only for ourselves but for all the saints. And then he says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Well, obviously, we're not going to pray for the Apostle Paul that words would be given him in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. But who could we pray for in order that words may be given to proclaim the mystery of the gospel? Well, at least me. Right? Those whom we've set apart for the work of preaching and teaching. We have to be praying for them, that especially in their work that the gospel would advance. We, we ought to be ministering to those in our spheres of influence, all of us, family members, friends, co-workers. We all ought to be talking to people about Christ Jesus. But there are those whose vocation in life is to preach and teach the Word of God. That's actually all that I have to do in this world. Right? I need to be I need to be a husband and a dad, but even there, fundamentally, the most important thing I can do is lead my family spiritually. And that goes for all husbands and dads. And then my actual career, my actual employment is to devote myself to the ministry of the Word of God and to prayer. And prayer, as we've seen, is to be offered towards the ministry of the Word of God. Right? So bring those who are set apart for that work before the Lord. We have on the welcome table, as our brother mentioned earlier in the service, the Reformed Baptist Missionary Prayer Guide for June. Take one of those home with you. Pray through it in your daily devotions. Pray through it if you're the head of your home. Take one and pray through it with your family in your family worship. If you're an individual, take one with you. Pray through it. Pray through the request. Most of the people mentioned in there are in the same position that I am in that they're set apart for the work of preaching and teaching the Word of God. Pray for them. That's one way that we can obey Paul's imperative here in Ephesians 6.19. So we need to be praying all, all around for ourselves, for our fellow soldiers, and especially for those whose work it is to, to preach and to teach. We need to be doing all of this prayer because as Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Right? We can fight all we want, but unless God's helping us, right? unless we're actually strengthened with the strength of the Lord's might, it's all for naught. And so we pray, asking that as we take up these weapons, as we endeavor to fight, that God would help us, that God would be at work in and through our efforts to protect us, to cause us all to stand, that not one of us would be lost. I, I pray that not one member of CRBC, for as long as this church shall last, would ever perish in hell. That we would never be so negligent in identifying those who are uh, regenerate 
that we would make a mistake in that respect. But also I pray that none who profess faith and are under the care of this church would apostatize from the faith. Would that we would all, on that last day, every single one be standing. That none of our brothers would be lost. That none of our sisters would be lost. There will be struggles for sure. There will be ebbs and flows. There may be cases of discipline. But would that we would watch over one another so carefully that not one will be lost. It's impossible for us ultimately to control the outcome of that. Even Christ Jesus said in His, in his high priestly prayer, I have not lost even one except Him whom the Scriptures said it would happen to. In other words, Judas. Right? There was even a Judas among Christ's disciples and we're not prepared to say He failed to care for them. We can't control that, that outcome. But what I'm speaking about is the impulse that we would be really diligent in this church to care for one another, to watch over one another, to pray for one another, to talk to one another, such that insofar as it does depend on us, that not even one, not even one would fall, that each and every one would stand. If this church lasts for 70 years or 220 years or if Christ should come back next week and this church lasts for eight months or whatever it may be, that, that everyone who has walked through the doors here, who has taken membership oaths to us, to whom we have taken membership oaths, committed ourselves as members of one another, that one day in that great innumerable multitude, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, so large that no one can count, that maybe we would all find ourselves, find one another among the masses and have a little reunion and say, here we all are, every single one. Through all the ups and downs, through the fierceness of the battle, we made it. Pray for one another. So as I said earlier, we are to fight. But we are to fight in dependence upon external strength and external provision. Namely that which comes from Christ. We Christians are like the Spartans in that we are necessarily warriors. But we are unlike the Spartans in that we are not to rely on our own strength. But on the strength of another. The strength that God has provided for us in and through Christ Jesus. We must depend on Him and the provisions that are ours in Him. Put on this armor day by day, and at least, brothers and sisters, stand. But pray for yourself, for your fellow soldiers, for me, for all the others who labor vocationally in the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Pray that not only would we stand, but that Christ would continue to build His church here in this locality, that we would advance, that... Christ would be glorified, that God would do His people good here. Pray to that end, for unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain.